So as most of you know, the next uh, month's Dharma talks are going to revolve around metta, loving-kindness, and the Brahma-viharas. The Brahma-viharas are what are called the divine abidings, divine home. They're uh, qualities of metta, loving-kindness, karuna, compassion, mudita, appreciative or sympathetic joy, and dupeka, or equanimity. These are all qualities of heart and mind that are present when we are at ease, at peace in life. I'd like to share with you a story about a friend of mine. Her name's Kate. For those of you who were here last summer, and there was some people who were here last summer, uh, you heard a little bit of this story already. But there's a follow-up to it. Kate is a woman who had breast cancer, and the cancer went into her bones, and then she was in a horrendous car accident. It was one of the worst accidents ever in the area in which she lives. Kate was in the hospital for a long time, in a coma, and nobody expected her to live. And it was thought that if she did live, she would have severe brain damage, spinal cord damage. It turned out that Kate did actually come out of her coma. And when she came out of the coma, it was discovered that she had no brain damage, she had no spinal cord damage, and that the cancer was gone, even though they did a lot of testing just to make sure that there was no evidence of the cancer. It was gone. Recently, a couple of uh, friends of mine went to visit her, and they asked her what it had been like. And she talked about coming out of the coma and saying that everywhere she looked, what she saw was love. And she saw this deep interconnectedness between all beings. She said it was also very amazing to see that humans have the capacity to make walls. And she said she could see that the energy that went into making a wall was the same creative force that went into making a leaf. When they were speaking to her, it was several months after she'd come out of the coma, and she said that she was no longer in this state. She said that she had found that Um, as a human being, it was difficult to stay in this purity of mind because when one started to function, there was the tendency to move into this I. And so she said she had more work to do. My two friends had a remarkable time with Kate. Later, one of them was reflecting on this time, and she said to the other friend that the thing that struck her about Kate was that there was no suffering. And so here's Kate, who now can only walk uh, with the help of crutches. She can only see out of one eye. She is dependent on others to help care for her. 
She has very little money and she has no suffering. My friend said she's undaunted, fearless about what her situation in life is. She said she was actually reading um, the Dalai Lama's book and she goes, oh, I know all this. (laughs) I wanted to share this because, you know, when we hear about um, divine abidings, when we hear about unconditional love being natural states of mind, you know, it can seem really abstract. And yet here's just a story of someone touching into this. Someone touching into the purity of heart-mind. I also wanted to share it because of something that I saw in my own mind. Last summer when I'd spoken about her, I was really praying for her that she could let go. That she could just let go as she laid there day after day in the coma. And, of course, I did hope for her that in the letting go there would be the grace of liberation. But it never occurred to me that it would play out in the way it did. That um, she would experience something so deeply transformative that it had the power to heal both heart and body. The Brahma-viharas are also a basis for wise relationship in the world. That we live in this world where we are continually relating. We live in a world of relationship, whether we like it or not. And when we use the Brahma-viharas as a guideline, as a way of relating skillfully, This too helps to create harmony in the world, create peace. It helps us to protect our own minds. The Brahma-viharas help us to break down the tension, helps us to break down the illusion of separation. It helps us to They help us to learn to find joy in relating to others. They help us to learn to stand steady in the face of suffering. Metta, or loving-kindness, is a way of turning our minds to this essential goodness, as are all of the Brahma-viharas. Metta is considered to be the foundation for the other Brahma-viharas. When we can really learn to open our hearts to wishing well for others, to living with inclusivity, uh, to caring for others, this helps to open us to be able to open to others' pain, to be able to open to their joys, and to really understand that all beings are the owners of their own karma. 
whether or not we will be doing metta practice intensively, it's still useful to have some understanding of these qualities of heart and mind. We will find them naturally arising in our Vipassana meditation. And when we do them intensively, it helps us to really come to know the characteristics of these qualities, to really feel the texture of metta, of just caring from the bottom of your heart for another living being, or to know the, co- the texture of compassion, to know how to connect with another in pain, to know the texture of appreciative joy, where we can really delight, find happiness in someone else's joy. or the texture of being able to accept someone just as they are. In coming to know these qualities of heart and mind, we actually learn how we can turn our minds to these qualities at times when we need protection when we need refuge, when we're getting caught in the torments of mind and need to find a safe harbor, when we've been uh, becoming overwhelmed by these torments of mind. And so we learn healthy, wholesome ways to turn the mind, to give it protection. In my own practice, I found the Brahma's Viharas to be invaluable. And um, it was really when I began teaching that I could uh, see how much metta practice often helped people. I know earlier in my own practice, I'd always thought of metta practice as being a lesser practice. I was really from the... uh, kind of die-hard Vipassana school and and metas for wusses. (laughs) You know, it was the lesser practice in some way. And um, I did come to recognize how helpful it could be. One time I was practicing with Sayadaw Ujjanaka, had been practicing for quite a while, and then found that I was getting really tight in the practice, painfully tight. Um, The mind felt very brittle and agitated, restless. And when I went in and reported my experience to Sayadaw, he told me that I should do metta practice. And then he looked at me and said very sternly, you must be successful. It kind of told me I was in a bad way. <laughs> and so uh, I realized, okay, I really better give this a try. You know, <laughs> So much for my metta-shmetta, <laughs> the do-gooder practice. <laughs> so I took, took his advice, and I went, and I started doing metta. And at first it was just as tight and agitated as my insight practice had been. 
But, you know, because it's also a concentration practice, that helps to give some steadiness to the mind. So I just continued to apply uh, myself. And then gradually, gradually, there was this softening that happened. And then, you know, the mind really came back into balance. In the unfolding of wisdom, it is necessary that we cultivate both wisdom and compassion. And using the word compassion here in the broad sense, um, good, you know, meaning all of the Brahma Viharas, not just compassion itself. You know, and wisdom and compassion are often likened to the two wings of a bird. And the bird needs both wings in order to be strong, to be able to fly, to be able to soar. And if we really just only focus on the wisdom aspect, we can find that there's a dryness, that uh, we aren't able to embody our wisdom. And as a result, there's still a sense of separation. We may at times then get caught in practices being quite abstract and not applicable to this life of relationship, where compassion will really help us to embody the wisdom. It also helps us to have the capacity to open to the deepest suffering in life. The Buddha often talked about the Brahma-vihara practices. And the Buddhist teachings were teachings of liberation. So this being an important component to the vast teachings that he offered. The Buddhist teachings were in the service of liberation. And often, when he would begin teaching lay people, he began with the practice of dana, or generosity. And metta is a huge component of generosity. It's that willingness to offer, to give, to consider the welfare of others. It is the benevolent heart. When we look at the Noble Eightfold Path, we can also see metta in different ways. We find metta in the training of sila, or ethical conduct, right speech, action, and livelihood. When we are skillful with our conduct, It is an expression of metta. It is an expression of friendliness, that deep caring. We also find metta in the samadhi training, the training in concentration, 
It's a way that we can seclude the mind from the hindrances. We also find that uh, mindfulness is a component to metta practice. In order to do metta, we have to be present to each phrase that we offer. We have to be aware of whom it is we're working with. It's a training in bringing our attention to our experience. And it also has the quality of gently accepting our experience. We also find it in the training of wisdom, in the training of right thought or right intention. The Buddha talked about there being three kinds of right thought, thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of goodwill, and thoughts of harmlessness. And metta relates to all of these. In the moment of metta, we renounce anger and aversion. In a moment of metta, we are practicing generosity of the heart. And through metta, we cease to harm other living beings. The importance of metta is expressed in a quote um, from Ajahn Buddhadasa, a Thai forest monk. He was once asked how Westerners who begin spiritual life with deep inner wounds, pain, and self-hatred can best approach practice. He replied with two suggestions. First, their whole spiritual practice should be enveloped by the principles of metta. And then they should be taken out into nature, into a beautiful forest or mountain. And they must stay there long enough to realize that they too are a part of nature. They must rest there until they too can feel harmony with all life and their proper place amidst all things. So letting our whole practice be enveloped by loving kindness. Looking at the qualities of loving kindness, qualities of friendship. It's learning to have a friendly relationship with ourselves, our experience, the world around us. Through metta, we can learn to be our own best friend. Having, uh, for many of us living in this culture, we find it's really hard to be our own best friend, that we can be so hard on ourselves at times. And yet through metta, finding a softening, an accepting of the way that we are. I had um, an experience uh, just about exactly a year ago when I felt like I had, I was experiencing some of the fruits of all of the metta practice that um, I've done. I was doing a retreat that got very, very difficult. And I was in, you know, to me it was challenging terrain. 
And I went through a time where, you know, it felt like I was out on this um, boat sailing on the ocean all by myself and came into a big storm. And I didn't have a moment to, to stop. I just had to keep maneuvering. I had to keep working very hard. And it was day and night that I had to keep working very hard. And it was really challenging. And then kind of suddenly the water started to calm down a bit. And right when it calmed down, I had the thought come into my head, you're a good friend to have. You know, that just that sense that we're, when we're really in difficulty, we can stand by ourselves. That we don't then, you know, when things get difficult, start turning on ourselves even more. That we can recognize we're in difficult terrain. And we can do whatever it is that we can in that moment to help the mind stay buoyant, afloat, to not be spiraling down into despair, but to work skillfully in the best way that we know to, and to simply do the best that we can. So metta, helping us to develop a friendly relationship, and really not just with ourselves, but with all life. It takes us to that place of inclusivity where we don't have such strong barriers about who we cherish in our worlds, but that we really learn to care deeply for all forms of life. Metta has the quality of gentleness. It's often likened to a gentle rain that falls everywhere. You know, the the gentle rain doesn't have preference as to where it's going to fall. And it's just that, you know, um, can find metta, almost that sense of just seeping into the body-mind in a very gentle way. Some of us who are from the bare-bones school might resonate more with the Abhidhamma description of metta, which is simply non-aversion. And I think for some people it's really helpful to hold it in that light, to keep it very simple. And non-aversion you know, doesn't sound actually so profound, and yet if we look at the amount of aversion we experience in a day, you know, all of the little judgments that come up, whether it's judgment of self, judgment of others, all of the times that we move into reactivity when things aren't the way we want them to be. And then imagine the mind protected from this aversion and just dwelling in non-aversion. So as we cultivate metta, these are the qualities that we are turning our minds towards. And when I use the word cultivate, uh, I use it with some hesitation because that can have the sense of having to manufacture. And that's not what this practice is about. It's about an aiming 
of the heart-mind to this inherent goodness, to the purity of heart-mind. In our lives, we get identified, uh, we get obstructions to this purity of heart-mind, as my friend Kate described, where we move into the I, me, mine, where we move into separation. And so the practice of metta helps us to see where we have this illusion of separation. And in the seeing of that, there can be the letting go, the releasing, and the coming to see of this deep interconnection with all life. Sometimes we hear descriptions of metta as being unconditional love, metta being boundless, non-discriminating. It can sound very idealistic, and we can have the sense, but what does this have to do with my life? And yet metta, as it appears in our lives, will often be very simple, very down-to-earth, It can be very quiet. It can be moments in our practice when we just diligently come back moment by moment, where we have that patience and acceptance of being present and wandering, being present and wandering. And we simply come back, whether it's to the breath or whether it's to phrases of loving kindness. And we just rest in doing the practice. In these moments, there's a great willingness to be with our struggles, to embrace what is happening in our experience. In moments where we're simply offering phrases of loving-kindness, we cease to judge the other as to whether they're worthy of our love. We cease to judge ourselves whether our love is really worth anything. And we simply rest in the simplicity of it. We can see um, the formation of the intention to wish well for another as an act of metta. And we learn to rest in this, to trust in this law of karma that as we form this intention in our hearts, it's the planting of a wholesome seed, planting of a seed that will grow in its own time. And our job is just to plant this seed. And I know this helped me immensely in my own practice, to recognize my part of the practice was just to plant the seeds and not to try to manufacture the feeling but to just, in that moment, be turning the mind towards wishing well, whether it's to ourselves or another. (coughs) 
we can be experiencing metta any time in our practice when we face difficulties. And there's a softening of heart to be with these difficulties, whether it's our knee pain or emotional pain. It's when we have that friendly relationship with our experience, where we bring a caring attention. The quiet voice of metta can be when we bring a full presence, either to being with our experience or to another. Sharon Salzberg, in her book on loving kindness, says, to love someone is to be totally present for them. And when we're totally present for someone, it doesn't come with a big sign that says, I'm here for you. It's really just that simplicity of being present. The Dalai Lama is someone who um, is such an embodiment of loving-kindness. And if you've ever met him, you know how one can feel. I mean, I'd, I'd heard it before I met him, that when he meet, greets you, it's as if he's greeting an old friend. And so, you know, one day I was in McLeod Guns and had lined up with a thousand other people to, to file past him, get a blessing cord, and shake his hand. And, you know, at first I thought, oh, this could be a bit weird, you know, feel a bit pretentious. And then when it was my turn, it was the feeling that everyone had described. You know, for that moment, it was as if we were long-lost friends. It was as if in that moment I was the most precious being in the world. And it was just his capacity to be there unconditionally in that moment. I'd like to share a quote from a woman named Joan Chittister. And to me this really points to, towards how down-to-earth metta practice can be. Try saying this silently to everyone and everything you see for 30 days. I wish you happiness now and whatever will bring happiness to you in the future. If we set it to the sky, we would have to stop polluting it. If we said it when we see ponds and lakes and streams, we would have to stop using them as garbage dumps and sewers. If we said it to small children, we would have to stop abusing them, even in the name of training. If we said it to people, we would have to stop stoking the fires of enmity around us. Beauty and human warmth would take root in us like a clear, hot June day. We would change. One description of metta is the welling up of love that a mother cow has when she first sees her newborn calf. No strong, spontaneous movement of heart. These times, it's not made up because we like the way somebody is. 
but there's a love that's not self-serving, self-referencing. Children and animals can often help us to touch into the quality of metta or loving-kindness. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to feed the birds around here, but you know, if you're holding out seed for the birds and one lands on you, it's just this spontaneous burst that comes from the heart of really wishing well for this tiny little being. <clears throat> but spontaneous moments of the heart opening in this way are sometimes at a premium in our life. And that's why metta becomes a practice. Because they don't happen all the time. So sometimes there will, it, our practice will be fueled by this spontaneity. And other times we will simply have to rest in the planting of the seeds of loving-kindness. The proximate cause or the condition that most easily gives rise to metta is seeing the goodness. Seeing the goodness in ourselves, seeing the goodness in another. For some of us, it's a bit of a stretch that you, we can be so habituated into looking for what's wrong, looking for what's not right, looking for another's faults, that we do have to consciously reflect, consciously retrain the mind to look for the goodness. And when we see the goodness, this helps to bring forth the spontaneous feeling of metta, where we care deeply for another. Seeing the goodness helps to open the heart. One of the ways it's suggested to begin metta practice is by reflecting on how all beings have the desire to be happy. That this is something that we share with all types of beings. In this way, we're opening up to what we have in common in a way that will help us to include that which seems different than ourselves, that which we may have a tendency to exclude. As we do metta practice, to remember that it is a practice and as we do when we do any practice, um, it often doesn't always feel so good. And it's not always enveloped by great ways of loving kindness. Metta is a purification practice. 
And it doesn't mean that we practice in order to make ourselves perfect, but by doing this practice, we will see the boundaries of separation. We come into contact with the hardening of the heart, the bitterness that we often carry in our hearts. We might come in contact with a feeling of numbness, as if we don't care, or as if the heart is paralyzed. But this is all a part of the practice. It's a part of seeing that which obscures the loving-kindness, really seeing these boundaries of separation. It helps us to return to the natural radiance of heart and mind. When I think of it as being a purification practice, um, I kind of get the image of having a really dirty mirror and then spraying cleaner on it. And as you start wiping the mirror, it gets worse. It gets really muddy. And you can't hardly see your reflection at times. And if you stopped right then, you probably think there was something wrong with the cleaner. But if you continue going, gradually things begin to clear. Um, and the reflection starts to come back with purity. And so, you know, sometimes that's what meta practice feels like. It can feel really mucky at times. I'd actually like to share with you um, a story that I received in the email once that I think, to me anyways, pretty much describes meta practice. And this is called Installing Love. And it's a conversation between a customer services rep and a customer. So customer service rep, can you install love? Customer, I can do that. I'm not very technical, but I think I'm ready to install now. What do I do first? Rep, the first step is to open your heart. Have you located your heart, ma'am? Customer, yes, I have, but there are several programs running right now. Is it okay to install while they are running? Rep, what are the programs that are running? Customer, let me see. I have pasthurt.exe, lowesteem.exe, grudge.exe, and resentment.com running right now. Rep, no problem. Love will automatically erase past hurt from your current operating system. It may remain in your permanent memory, but it will no longer disrupt other programs. Love will eventually overwrite low esteem with a module of its own called high esteem. However, you have to completely turn off grudge and resentment. Those programs prevent love from being properly installed. Can you turn those off, ma'am? Customer, I don't know how to turn them off. Can you tell me how? Rep, my pleasure. Go to your start menu and invoke forgiveness. And do this as many times as necessary until grudge and resentment have been completely erased. Customer, okay, I'm done. Love has started installing itself automatically. Is that normal? Rep, yes, it is. You should receive a message that says it will reinstall for the life of your heart. Do you see that message? Customer, yes, I do. Is it completely installed? Rep, yes, but... Remember that you have only the base program. You need to begin connecting to other hearts in order to get the upgrades. Customer, oops, I have an error message already. What should I do? 
What does the message say? Customer, it says, error 412, program not run on internal components. What does that mean? Rep, don't worry, ma'am, that's a common problem. It means that the love program is set up to run on external hearts, but it has not yet been run on your heart. It is one of those complicated programming things, but in non-technical terms, it means you have to love your own machine before it can love others. Customer, so what should I do? Rep, can you find the directory called self-acceptance? Customer, yes, I have it. Rep, excellent, you're getting good at this. Customer, thank you. Rep, you're welcome. Click on the following files and then copy them to the My Heart directory. Forgive self, self-esteem, realize worth, and goodness. The system will overwrite any conflicting files and begin patching any faulty programming. Also, you need to delete self-criticize from all directories and then empty your recycle bin afterwards to make sure it is completely gone and never comes back again. Customer, got it. Hey, my heart is filling up with really neat files. Smile is playing on my monitor right now, and it shows that warmth, peace, and contentment are copying themselves all over my heart. (laughs) Rep, then love is installed and running. You should be able to handle it from here. One more thing before I go. Yes? Love is freeware. Be sure to give it and its various modules to everybody you meet. They will in turn share it with other people and they will return some really neat modules back to you. Sounds like metta practice to me. (laughs) With all of the challenges, with all of the things we have to face, uh, what will arise in our own mind streams, and the potential that we can let go of these old habits, let go of past hurt, low esteem, resentment, grudges. These are just all habits of mind. And through the metta practice, it's learning to turn the mind to something more wholesome, stable, reliable. As we do the metta practice, we do discover that it has a contagious element. I was only recently just reading a story about um, Sayada Ujjanaka, one of my teachers from Burma. Uh, He was telling how he was in this um, bookshop in Vancouver in Canada, And he was just standing there looking at books, and this woman came up to him, and uh, she said, you know, I've been going through a really hard time in life. Things have been really difficult, and I I just feel so peaceful being near to you. Would you mind if I just stood here for a while? And he, he said, no, it's fine. You can just stand there. And he just continued on looking, and he said that she, she stood there for about an hour while he looked at his books. And, and then at the end she says, thank you. I feel so much more peaceful now, so much more at ease. And, you know, when we've been around people who exude or imbued with this metta or loving kindness, we start to feel that in ourselves. It starts to resonate because it's there within each of us. It's not anything we have to manufacture.
just another story around the difficulties and how painful it can be at times. Um, a few weeks ago, I was telling a story about being a nun in Burma. I had ordained and I was in a nunnery in Sagain Hills and was going through a very difficult time. And I'm not going to go into those difficulties again or now. But it was really quite a painful time for me. But living in this nunnery, it felt like I was in a meta bath. That um, I was being shown such kindness, such care. And uh, the abbess of the nunnery was just so attuned to my every need and taking care of me. The Sayadaw who was connected with the nunnery, every time I saw him, he would just light up and I would feel this washing of metta coming through. Often people, when I would meet them, would have just, you know, joy spring to their face. I mean, it was a situation where they weren't used to having a Western nun in their midst. And somehow I think there was a degree of joy that that brought to their life. Um, and you know, their heart, Burmese people often just have these hearts that are so open, um, can really be touching. So here I was in this atmosphere of a meta bath. And here I was struggling, uh, having a hard time, being really hard on myself. And, you know, each time I stepped out and someone would see me and there'd be this deep glow in their face, I would feel my own unworthiness. I would feel um, just contract my own contraction of heart. And yet I found over time in being there that that metta really held me. It helped me to be with that rigidity in my own heart. And it was, you know, with that gentleness of the rain, that it was just seeping in to my heart. And, you know, I know that it is something that I will never forget. It had such a strong impact. And that is the power of metta. Metta is based upon our wishing well for another, for ourselves, without attachment, without wanting something in return. So often, our what we call love has so many conditions that come with it. But this is not true metta. True metta has no conditions to it. It's freely offered. Deepama was once asked, how can you love and not attach at the same time? And she responded, a simple example is that of water. Non-attachment means you flow on top of the water. You don't plunge into it. You stay afloat without going under. She was also asked how her basic understanding of life changed. She said, My outlook has greatly changed. Before I was too attached to everything. I was possessive. I wanted things. But now it feels like I am floating, detached. I am here. I don't want things. I don't want to possess anything. I'm living. That's all. 
that's enough. When there's the purity of metta, to love is enough without asking anything in return. It is through doing metta practice that we begin to be able to distinguish what is metta and what is um, love that has conditions with it, attachment with it. We begin to see this, but at times it's very subtle wanting of something in return. Metta practice requires a trust that is not experienced in the wanting mind. A trust that does not grasp, but is able to accept things as they are. And I know when I first began doing metta practice, there was um, this sense of having to do the practice. And it took a while to figure out what my part was in the practice, what I could rest in doing, which was simply to formulate the intention in the heart and to offer it, and to simply do that the best that I could. And then to trust in the power of the practice itself, to remember it's nothing that we can force, push, or manufacture. Recently, I read quite a wonderful quote by Ajahn Chah, Thai forest master, when he was speaking about the fruits of practice and the ripening of our practice. He said, our spiritual perfections or paramis are not complete. It's like the fruit on a tree. You can't force it to be sweet. It's still unripe. The reason that it's small and sour is because it hasn't yet finished growing. You can't force it to be bigger, to be sweeter, to be riper. You have to let it ripen according to its nature. As time passes, the fruit will grow and ripen and become very sweet by itself. In the same way, as the time passes, people reach spiritual maturity. With such an attitude, you can be at ease. But if you are impatient and dissatisfied, if you keep asking, why isn't this mango sweet yet? Why is it still sour? Then what can be done? It's sour because it's not ripe. That's the nature of the fruit. Likewise, as people's spiritual faculties mature, they develop faith. It's not something one can force. If we look at it in this way, then it will be okay. We really need to rest in the ripening of our hearts towards metta, remembering it's nothing we can force or push.
A common misconception that we can have um, is that by opening up to metta, unconditional love, is that we will become powerless, as if people will walk all over us. In contrast, true metta has an incalculable power. I remember when I was doing metta intensively, uh, the word that kept popping into my mind was fathomless. That metta is boundless, has no limits, no barriers. I mean, just imagine right now this feeling of loving kindness. Um, Just imagine this sailing off into the universe and never stopping. No edges to it. There's no boundary, no end, nothing to be stopped by, and nothing to be fearful of. Nothing to be fearful of. Metta practice was actually given to some monks who were experiencing strong states of fear. And through doing the metta practice, they overcame their fear. How much fear do we experience in our own lives? How many times are we stopped by fear? Metta helping us to Become fearless, not meaning that we do stupid things in the name of proving fearlessness, but that we don't become paralyzed or constricted in our own hearts and minds. There's a wonderful story about this um, fearlessness that the power of metta can have, as is told by Sister Chang Fong who's a Buddhist nun, who was one of the first four clergy ordained by Thich Nhat Hanh. And during the Vietnam War, she was a forerunner in the social welfare programs there. And and this was before becoming an international advocate of peace. And so this is her story. One night, we we stopped in Song Quang, a remote village where the fighting was especially fierce. As we As we were about to go to sleep in our boat, we suddenly heard shouting, then screaming, then shooting again. The young people in our group were seized with panic, and a few young men jumped in the river to avoid the bullets. I sat quietly in the boat with two nuns and breathed consciously to calm myself. Seeing us so calm, everyone stopped panicking, and we quietly chanted the Heart Sutra, concentrating deeply on this powerful chant. For a while, we didn't hear any bullets. I don't know if they actually stopped or not. The day after, I shared my strong belief with my co-workers. When we work to help people, the bullets have to avoid us because we can never avoid the bullets. When we have goodwill and great love, when our only aim is to help those in distress, I believe there is a kind of magnetism, the energy of goodness that protects us from being hit by the bullets. We only need to be serene then even if a bullet hits us, we can accept it calmly, knowing that everyone had to die one day. If we die in service, we can die with a smile, without fear.
metta, helping to bring this quality of fearlessness that's not dependent on conditions being a certain way. Metta is one of the beautiful states. Turning our minds towards it, we get reminded of the purity of heart-mind, the natural radiance of the heart. It's a purification practice through which we get to see the ways that we have fallen into the illusion of separation. Just seeing this helps us to bring this into consciousness so that we can slowly let go of this illusion of separation. It helps us to develop a friendly relationship with all life. Metta, at its deepest level, is the realization of the truth of interconnectedness and honoring this interconnectedness and letting this be the place out of which we live our lives. Mother Teresa says, love is a fruit in season at all times and within reach of every hand. So let's sit for a moment. May all beings come to know the gentle, cool touch of loving-kindness. Closing with the sharing of blessings, which is also another form of loving kindness. <clears throat> Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my the sun and the moon and all virtuous leaders of the world may the highest cause and evil forces celestial beings guardian spirits of the earth 
my practice and through this act of sharing may all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge, unsurpassed is the protection of the Dharma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord, the Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.